Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusson from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, hello, it's that time again. Time for us to have some All the Things. It's Saturday night. Is it though? Is it really? <laughs> you never know with us. <laughs> it is not Saturday night. It is a Monday morning at 8.30. Saturday night, we will actually be in West Chicago having a little fun at Community Fellowship Church. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a minute. We want to let everyone know that this is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Yes, and I was technically supposed to say that, but I figure you already know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you are? I'm Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also yes. known as Theology Mom. And helping us today and every day on the show is Bob Bontrager. There he is. Professional button pushers. Let me tell you, he has a lot of buttons. buttons. (laughs) It's a little bit of a lot of buttons. But see, the professional part is knowing which ones to push and when. I would just push them all. (laughs) That would be my my situation there now that, that's why you're over there monique that that is true that is why i'm over here <laughs> keep me in my place um now who's in the chat box well i don't know because okay. it's only monday it's only on monday spot. we're not sure but someone's there and and um if time permits we'll try to be there uh we don't know uh i know we're speaking saturday night in chicago so but there will be a live chat box there will be moderators so go ahead and jump in there you can engage with the content as we go through the program today. Yes, let's do it. Now, if you would like to help support the show, share the show. Yes. Share it on Facebook, share it on Instagram, share it on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up and a like to let our algorithms know that you actually are enjoying our content. That's right. Help us overcome the shadow banning and it just forces the artificial intelligence to push out our content. So those those shares, likes, comments, all of that really does help um, us a great deal. So it's a very practical way you can share to support the show. And we also have our design of the week from Family 210 Clothing. Yes. Let's see what Bob's got cooking. Greater things. Oh, sort of your riff on uh, Stranger Things. I like that. So you can go check out our family's clothing shop uh, where we have Christian t-shirt designs uh, designed by my husband and you can help support our family directly by going to teespring and looking for family 210 that is awesome now our book clubs are well one book club is completely filled the the live experience yes is filled. the live experience of my uncle vody baka he's not really my uncle but <laughs> in my heart confused. in my heart he really is um Uncle Vody Bakum, his book club, the book club that's being led by Jamal Bandy, the live experience where you will actually sit in a Zoom group with everyone else to openly discuss, that is completely filled. But, but if you would like to receive the recordings of each week's session, that is available. We call that the virtual experience. Yes. So, but we're also doing uh, a book club. Our friend Melissa Palou is leading a conversation on Jamar Tisby's book. The Color of Compromise. Now, we've had a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. People are like, why are you doing Yeah, the a book group on The Color of Compromise? So why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're doing there? 
Well, I think it's important for us to understand both sides of the argument, to understand the information that people who we may not completely agree with are putting out there. And so we can read this book. It's, I mean- It's a very influential book. Yes, it is influencing many people. It's being brought into churches and universities, into high schools. Abby, your daughter was given this as a suggested reading list. From her Christian high school. Yes, this book was on there. And so, you know, what is, what are people suggesting that our children read? Or what is our, what are our pastors suggesting we read? So let's get into this book specifically and then take a very biblical perspective um, or analysis of this book. What are some helpful parts? I'm not saying the whole book is terrible. Yeah. You know, what are the helpful parts? And then what are the places where we need to be cautious or, you know, completely reject that and say, you know what, that's not biblical. It's not yeah. found in scripture. So our friend Melissa Palou will be leading that group. Book Spring book clubs begin April 12th. And again, every club that we run has two options. There's the live Zoom call option where you can jump on the Zoom call. Mm-hmm. And then there's the virtual option where you can just access the recordings, but participate in a Facebook group discussion. Now, uh, the Vody Bauckham live group is full, but there's still room in the Color of Compromise group. And it's like and eight slots. Yeah. yeah so, so jump on that. Groups begin April 12th. And now you this can, is Monday. I hope by Saturday we not liars. No, I think, it'll, like, <laughs> I think it'll be There's right. room. Oopsies. There's room at the cross for you, but possibly not in the book There's club. room at the cross, but not in this book group. <laughs> Don't play no games. So go to centerforbiblicalunity.com slash book clubs. Yes. All right. We have a very special guest today. I am very excited. I have to admit, I have followed. We're, we're going to be talking to Joe Dallas, uh, pastor. He's a biblical counselor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a wonderful testimony. And I followed Joe Dallas's ministry for probably about 10 years now. Wow. And he's one of the only people that I refer. Pe- I very rarely refer people to other ministries. But Joe Dallas is a trusted resource that I've referred many people to over the years. And I'm super excited to be able to meet him Mm -hmm. and talk about his wisdom today in how to biblically and um, lovingly engage our LGBT friends. So I know he's new for you. Yes. You didn't know who he was. No. (laughs) But it'll uh, it'll be a good opportunity to... Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward it. to the conversation. I have many questions. Um, and Because you have friends. Oh, yeah. Are, yeah, yeah, definitely. I have friends, people that I dearly love who um, who are, you know, either LGBTQ plus affirming. So they may be, you know, heterosexual, straight, cisgender, whatever. Um, and and they just completely affirm this lifestyle or they are living actively within the lifestyle themselves. And so Honestly, I've been very hesitant to talk about this topic at all because I don't want to shame my friends or to, um, you know, make it seem like I am being extremely judgmental of of them. Like, how do I have this conversation appropriately? What were my thoughts on it and coming out of some of my, my thoughts? But, you know, I think that we can have a biblical conversation about um, LGBTQ plus, um, people who we love who may be, you know, in that lifestyle or affirming of that lifestyle, because that's something that, you know, it's not just something that like I experience. like, oh, my friends, you know, I, I know that many other people also, yeah. you know, are in this situation as well. So and I have friends and family members, but it also connects to conversation. We have a lot on the show related to critical theory, mm-hmm. a different branch of critical theory, not critical race theory, 
although it does have some overlap into that, but queer theory yeah, and that realm as well. So it's definitely in the same line of other conversations we have on the show. So let's get Joe Dallas here. Whoop, whoop. There he is. Good morning. Hello. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good seeing both of you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on. Yeah. It's great to talk to you. Maybe for... Um, so for people, me. <laughs> for, Monique, for me and all the people that are new that that don't know you, they're just meeting you for the first time. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you and your ministry and and what it is that you do. Yeah, well, the 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 subject sure isn't just academic to me. I mean, it's it's very personal. Uh, I am one of the thousands and thousands of people who um, have experienced a conflict between their faith and their sexuality. I came to Christ when I was 16 years old. By that time, I was already very aware that I was attracted to men. I had already had a number of same-sex relationships. And when I heard the gospel, came under conviction, and finally was born again, I thought that is going to resolve everything. If I am a true Christian, then whatever homosexual desires I have, they're going to simply vanish. I'll be a new creature in Christ. Everything will be wonderful. And what I found was that temptations remained. And they remained for years, even though I stopped acting on them. I was completely repentant. I still experienced these inner fantasies and desires. And I mistakenly thought that if I had temptations in that way, it must mean that I was doing something wrong. I was a second-rate Christian. And at that time, now mind you, this was 1971. So I'm giving it away. I'm 66 years old. Uh, At that time, why nobody did what we're doing here. You you didn't talk about this subject as openly as we're talking about it uh, here and now. And so because of that, I thought I was about the only person in the entire body of Christ who had this particular temptation. I thought it made me a freak. It set me apart. And that pressure of secrecy, uh, why it eventually played out in me giving up. And I think you know how this plays out. If you have a secret... Uh, area of vulnerability, and you don't bring it to the light, eventually that's going to become an area of bondage, not just vulnerability. And so by the time I was 23, I did start uh, giving myself permission to use porn, eventually started going out to gay bars and acting out. And I realized that I uh, could not just continue to live a very promiscuous lifestyle as, as an openly gay man, Uh, But I also didn't want to uh, give up my sexuality entirely. And that's when someone presented me with a pro-gay interpretation of the Bible. And that was when I began identifying myself as an openly gay Christian attending a gay-affirming church. And I very actively promoted the pro-gay interpretation of Scripture until uh, early 1984, when I, I really started experiencing more and more conviction from God that this was an error that I had adopted to try to find some way of compromise rather than just submitting myself to the truth. Now, the reason I say all of that is my work since 1987 has been primarily with women and men who experienced the same thing I did. Uh, There are many people who identify as LGBTQ+, who are gay-affirming. They realize they're attracted to the same sex. They celebrate that. And... um, they have the right to do so. But there are many people who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, and they want to submit themselves 
to what God has revealed in Scripture as his intention for the human sexual experience and, and uh, of course, according to his definition of the family. And, and people who experience that are in need of support and of guidance and of full inclusion within the body of Christ, not as people who are practicing sexual sin, but as people who privately wrestle with sinful temptations. And who, who in the body of Christ does not privately wrestle with some kind of a temptation? So while on the one hand, I do encourage and, and uh, have often participated in dialogue with the LGBTQ community, the primary focus of my work has been Christians who privately wrestle with same-sex attractions, with parents who are Christian, who have openly gay or lesbian sons and daughters, and with people who are wanting to more effectively dialogue with people who are impacted by this. So that's both my story and my work in a nutshell. Wow. So when you said that you were um, impacted by like LGBTQ plus, did you say scriptures? Like, is there like a, a Bible in church specifically for, you know, those who who are considering themselves to be homosexual? Like, I know some denominations participate in that, but is there something else outside of that? Well, Monique, when I was first exposed to that, I call it the pro-gay theology. It's a pro-gay interpretation of scripture. Gay-affirming churches use the same Bible the rest of us use, but they interpret it differently. And what they basically say is that the original Greek and Hebrew languages of scripture indicate something other than what we have traditionally believed those verses say. So, for example, they will say that verses in Leviticus that prohibit homosexuality actually prohibit something else, maybe pedophilia or male prostitution or idolatry. Or they will say that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality, therefore it can't be an issue to him. They use the same Bible, but they interpret it differently. Now, when I embraced this in 1978, just about the only game in town, if you wanted a gay-affirming church, was the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches. You may or may not have even heard of that. It was the preeminent pro-gay uh, religious group, though, at the time. And uh, they promoted the pro-gay interpretation of the Bible, which has now been adopted by, as you know, the um, Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and really by some uh, very well-known um, leaders who identify themselves as evangelical. So definitely the Bible-believing modern uh, church is being challenged to consider the claims of pro-gay theology and examine them in light of scripture. And uh, I believe that pro-gay theology represents one of the most growing and prominent errors that is uh, beginning to attach itself to Christianity today. Well, that was going to be one of the questions that I had for you, actually, is because I like when I have conversations with some of my friends, they say, well, you know, the Bible, when it talks about homosexuality, is really talking about sex with little boys or, you know, prostituting yourself and things like that. Like that isn't what God wants for you. But God also affirms that love is love. And so, um, you know, if I'm in a, a homosexual relationship, I'm still experiencing love. And God isn't saying that I should not experience same-sex attraction or same-sex love, he's saying that I should not um, do so in a way that would infringe or violate someone else's rights or or um, their like body. Consenting adults. Yeah, consenting adults. Yeah. You know, so I wouldn't do that with a child. 
or I wouldn't mm-hmm. sell myself because my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I, I want to make sure that I'm doing something that's healthy, but love is healthy. So what like what's your position on it? What does the, the scripture actually say about homosexuality? Well, let's first of all consider what would cause someone to feel so strongly about such an argument as, as the one that you, you just articulated, Monique. Uh, when people are attracted to the same sex, they're experiencing something they didn't choose. This is involuntary. You don't choose your orientation, you realize your orientation. And when you realize it, you have to make a decision, especially if that orientation is homosexual in nature. You have to decide whether you're going to resist it or you're going to express it. And that decision is going to be largely based on your worldview. Now, what if your worldview collides with what you are experiencing? I believe the biblical worldview teaches us that we have a creator. This is what we see from the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see that the creator had intentions. Therefore, humanity was created by design with intentions that are spelled out again in the first book of the Bible and reiterated throughout scripture. And those intentions extend themselves to our relationships, uh, both civil and social and familial and sexual. The the first critical thing God said about humanity was when he looked at Adam and said, okay, uh, it is not good that he be alone. And therefore I am going to create a suitable partner for him in a sexual and an emotional and even a spiritual union And uh, so God set out by design that the male-female relationship was his intention to answer the need for sexual partnership and deep emotional lifelong intimacy. And that particular uh, answer to that human need is reiterated by Jesus in the Gospels and really throughout all of Scripture. Now, to someone who is experiencing sexual desires that are at odds with created intent, they will often opt to say, I'm going to yield to my desires because I don't know what else to do. So now I have to find a way to end the conflict. Perhaps I can rewrite or find a revised version of the scriptures that I believe condemn my giving myself over to these feelings. Now, homosexuality is condemned in both the Old and the New Testament, right alongside fornication, incest, Um, adultery, as well as injustice and cruelty and idolatry. I mean, the Bible certainly doesn't single it out as a special sin, but it does say that homosexuality, like all these other behaviors, falls short of created intent. And to the disciple, the follower of Jesus Christ, why the question is never what feels natural to me, but rather, am I following my Lord by taking up my cross and by submitting all of my life inward and outward uh, to his will and to his intentions. Now, to the person who wants to adopt pro-gay theology, it sounds like an answer to prayer when you first hear it, because it seems like, oh, this is wonderful. I can have both. I can be a follower of Jesus Christ, and I can be in the kind of a relationship I value. And Monique, I, I often have heard the argument that uh, you were just articulating love is love if i'm loving how can that be wrong but when you think about it scripture never says that love alone legitimizes a relationship now i've been married for 34 years now um i cannot believe that mm, uh, there could be other men who my wife might find appealing uh and who might be 
more intelligent than me, that's not going to be hard to find. Uh, more charming than me, certainly handsomer and younger than me. Uh, would that legitimize her loving that? If she loved that man, would that legitimize her leaving me? No, of course not. So the fact that we love someone in and of itself does not legitimize our having a sexual or romantic relationship with that individual. One of the greatest errors I think pro-gay theology promotes is the error of thinking that as long as a relationship is not verifiably violating, as in a, a relationship between an adult and a child, or a commercial transaction, as in a relationship with a prostitute, then it can be legitimate as long as love is involved. Uh, actually, what derailed Solomon's life was his love for a lot of foreign women. So the fact that someone loves does not automatically mean they should pursue the object of their love. So in hearing in hearing all that, like, what do you say to people who then say, well, you know, Christians and Christianity and Jesus, they just want me to live like they want me to live and basically just want me to suppress, you know, my sexual urges or Jesus wouldn't want me to suppress my sexual urges. Only the Christians do because I am created like this is this is. You you said like you you wake up basically to the realization of your your sexual desires. And so how then if I woke up like this, am I not created like this? And isn't that just now telling me to suppress my my desires? That really speaks to a, a, a primary doctrine in scripture, Monique, that I don't think we talk about enough. And that's fallen nature. We are all created by God. We are not all God created us to be. Those are two separate things. We're born with a sin nature, and that means we, we have what I would call universal sinful tendencies. All of us can relate to the temptation to lie or, oh, I don't know, to punch somebody out or to be selfish. And then there are also unique temptations or conflicts that, that individuals feel. And in, in many cases, homosexuality is one of them. Um, but the fact that I feel something very deeply does not mean that God intended me to have that feeling. In fact, the first thing, well, not the first, but the primary thing God said um, when he pronounced what's commonly called the fall or the, the curse, when Adam and Eve had taken themselves outside of God's will, deliberate disobedience and deception, God said basically, okay, now the human experience is going to include all sorts of things I never intended. You're going to die. I didn't intend that to happen. Your bodies are going to decay. I didn't intend that to happen. You're going to get in these weird power struggles with each other. I didn't intend that to happen. The environment is going to become adversarial to you. I didn't intend that to happen. So what he said in essence was, you are going to experience things I never wanted you to experience. Now I'm going to provide an answer. I'm going to provide a redeemer. But uh, henceforth, the human experience until, he didn't say it this way, but until Christ comes and restores complete righteousness, it's going to include a lot of conflicts and um, passions and, and experiences that I never intended. So I, I don't believe we could ever say that because I feel something, God must have intended me to feel it. As far as repressing my sexuality, I want to say this carefully because it's not... It is incredibly hard when you feel something you didn't ask to feel and you're hearing people say, well, it's wrong to give into that feeling. And, and you, 
as a lesbian woman or a gay man or a trans person or a bisexual person are feeling like, well, that's that's kind of a raw deal. You know, if God doesn't want me to feel this way, then he can take the feelings away. But if he doesn't take the feelings away, it seems unfair to ask me not to give in to them. And that's part of the cruelty of life in this fallen world. But in all fairness, what Christian is not being asked at times to suppress their feelings, including sexual feelings. I wouldn't believe a married Christian man or a married Christian woman who says they never, ever, ever have felt any attraction to anyone other than their spouse or any wayward sexual feelings at all. That's part and parcel of the human experience. And while I wouldn't impose this on a non-believer, I would never say, because the Bible condemns homosexuality, I want laws passed that prohibit you from practicing homosexuality. No, no. But to the believer who says, I have submitted my life to Jesus Christ, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, well, salvation is open to everyone, but discipleship has very specific requirements. When Jesus said, you know, the primary element of discipleship, anyone comes after me, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And this is a part of that self-denial. So to my thinking as a believer and as a disciple of Jesus Christ, repression is not a dirty word. I think on a daily basis, we repress a number of desires we have because we realize I may want something, but if it is contrary to what I believe, if it conflicts with my worldview and my deepest principles, I'm not really going to be happy if I pursue that. In fact, let me kind of cut to the chase. That was the bottom line for me in 1984. I realized I can go on pursuing same-sex relationships, but the question is, am I really at peace with that? Do I believe it is what God intended? Is it in harmony with my deepest principles. Now, if somebody openly gay or lesbian says to me, I live this life out and it is in harmony with my deepest principles, I may disagree with them on, on their principles, mm -hmm. but I would allow their right to pursue that life. But my right is, is just as critical. It was my right in 1984 to say, you know what, if I pursue this kind of a relationship, I will not be at peace with it. Therefore, I am going to need to say no to it and pursue a different way of living. Uh, and that, to my thinking, is the way of discipleship, and it's the cost of discipleship. I'm seeing a rise among evangelicals of redefining marriage and of looking at gay identity issues as kind of becoming, rather than a, a primary issue in the faith, as being an agree-to-disagree issue. It was like, well, now it's just a matter of different interpretations of the Bible. Who could possibly arbitrate um, which interpretation is correct? So therefore, we should live in our local churches in a space of LGBT matters are an agree-to-disagree issue rather than in, in essentials unity. So um, in my way of thinking, um, I look at what we call commonly traditional marriage as an important kind of first order issue. Um, but I know that that position is sort of waning right now in, in many evangelical spaces. So I'm just wondering, you know, if, if you could comment on, on that controversy and how to arbitrate which approach to scripture is correct. Yeah, well, there's. I think there's two uh, changes we're seeing in, in modern evangelicalism. 
One is a shift towards adopting what I call the revisionist view of scripture. The revisionist view of scripture is the pro-gay theology. It revises our understanding of biblical references to homosexuality. That's a shift towards a gay-affirming viewpoint. Another shift is what you just named there, Krista, and that is um, a shift in priority. It basically is a shift from saying this is an essential doctrine to now saying it's secondary when it comes to unity among believers. Right. And there are issues that I think are secondary when it comes to unity. They're important issues, but we don't break fellowship over them. So um, good grief, somebody's right about the rapture of the church. <laughs> it's either pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib, whatever. Somebody's um, right and somebody's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. Yeah. And I can't imagine us breaking fellowship over that. You know, uh, we can argue about or debate uh, eternal security or some of the points of Calvinism. I, I really can't see us breaking fellowship over that. But when scripture itself elevates something to priority status, which it does when it comes to the definition of sexual sin, sexual sin is condemned in the vast majority, just for example, of New Testament books, uh, the first case of church discipline and even disfellowshipping occurred over a matter of sexual sin within the church at Corinth. Paul even spelled out to the Corinthians that sexual sin is one of a number of different sins that would disqualify people if they are believers who are unrepentant in sexual sin or in drunkenness or in idolatry, that we cannot be in communion with them. So clearly the definition of marriage and family and the nature of sexual sin as being a severe primary issue that does say that any form of sexual sin, adultery, fornication, or homosexuality, uh, does qualify as a primary issue, not a secondary one. And that's why I would say, no, this is not just something we can agree to disagree on. We have to take the scriptures in their original language, their original context, and take them for what they say uh, and apply them to our lives as we would apply them in other areas of life. So for all of those reasons, um, I am against the trend towards saying, well, let's consider this and agree to disagree issue and attempt to fellowship together. Um, in addition to all those reasons I just gave, let me say this, it would be very naive to think that's the way it's gonna play out. It won't. Uh, in, in any church or in any group for that matter, where you have seen people holding a gay affirming view and people holding a, a non-affirming view, when you've seen them trying to stay together in an organization or in some kind of a communion, eventually the gay affirming viewpoint will say, in essence, your viewpoint is now archaic, it is bigoted, it is hateful, it will no longer be allowed. Yeah. And so what starts off as sort of a plea for um, inclusivity eventually becomes a demand for exclusion of the traditional viewpoint. And I, I've got no doubt that would happen in any group that adopts a pro-gay interpretation of scripture. That's helpful. I, I think it just is a little part of my own journey is about six years or so ago, uh, six or seven years ago, I watched the kind of now viral video by Matthew Vines. Yeah. Um, I think maybe he was 19 or 20 at the time. Um, and it was given at a Methodist church and um, he gave basically what I'm imagining you heard back in the 1970s yes. that what he gave was not new. Who's Matthew Vine? He is a for those of gay us affirming uh, 
Christian okay. who wants to make a case for an evangelical Bible believing position that is gay affirming. Okay. And he, he basically, I'm imagining Joe, and maybe you can comment on this, that he was using the similar or the same arguments that you heard back in the 1970s um, in that. And now Matthew Vines leads a major ministry called like the new reformation or something. Um, the reformation where, project. Yeah. Where he's yeah. trying to, bring this into evangelical spaces and make his case for a gay affirming position as an agree to disagree issue. And that you can take the Bible seriously and, and make a biblical case. I'll have to tell you, Joe, in all honesty, when I first watched that video, it really rocked me. I was like, wow, I got a, and here I am a, a theologian. I've been, you know, traveling in, in theology for two decades at that point. And I was like, okay, I got to sit down and really think this through. And that was really my first confrontation with those arguments. And I really had to restudy the scriptures and rethink some things. And, um, but I am wondering if, if what Matthew Vines is putting forward are things that you've, you've been addressing for decades and and you know if if this is kind of similar to what you you've seen since your journey in in the 70s with this well matthew vines uh krista i think is uh, currently the most articulate uh spokesperson for revisionist theology uh he's an awfully good speaker he's he is. an excellent teacher he's a very very gifted he's very compelling yeah. and persuasive and, uh, uh, you, you know, you listen to his presentation and you think, what's not to like? This is a very likable young man whose presentation is very earnest and very articulate and very well thought out. Uh, and it challenges something from a conservative base. Matthew does not come along saying, well, the Bible isn't really the word of God. Right. And Christianity is just one of many ways to God. Matthew declares himself a Bible-believing Christian who believes in the essentials of scripture and does not challenge the authority of scripture, but he wants to challenge our understanding of scripture. And that's an important distinction. When people come along challenging the authority of scripture, they're basically saying the Bible is not divinely inspired as you believe it is. Matthew is saying, no, the Bible is divinely inspired, but God never intended us to understand homosexuality as something sinful. We have misinterpreted scripture just as Racists have misinterpreted scripture to uh, legitimize racism, just as cultists have misinterpreted scripture to legitimize whatever their crazy viewpoints were. So now he says the church has largely misinterpreted scripture um, and the Reformation pro project basically seeks to reform our understanding uh, as, as a church. Most of his arguments are ones I had heard in the 70s, but he's also brought some new ones to the table. Okay. And I think that basically it comes down to this both positions and principles. He challenges our positions, our belief that these verses condemn homosexuality, and he employs principles that sound pretty good, like, well, God doesn't mean a person to be alone, therefore it we must allow people to partner according to their orientation because that is a better option than telling them they have to live in celibacy or not meet their deepest needs through the sexual emotional union that would come most naturally to them. That's a principle that he employs that can also be very persuasive. So 
Um, it is a, it is a very emotionally compelling argument, and yeah. when he he makes that because what he'll say is that um, well when Adam made or when God made Eve for Adam, he made her according to what Adam's orientation was, and so she need he needed her, but that there could be a different scenario where it would have been a good match. Um, if there was uh, two men, but the reason he made Eve is it, not, uh, as Joe was arguing earlier, it's not an issue of created order for male and female. Rather, it's just, it was kind of more of, well, that's what was in view, was that Adam was heterosexual, so he made the suitable partner for him, which was Eve. But if Adam had been homosexual, he would have made a suitable partner for him, which was a man. This is his argument. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I guess that brings me to... Uh, I was going to say, that kind of just, to me, reduces God down to a matchmaker as <laughs> opposed to, like, a, a heavenly father and creator who understands his children, who knows what's best, who, um, who has set certain things in order from the beginning. So I said, like, not me, but God set something and established something from the beginning, and it was a part of a created order. And so if that's what he established and was part of the created order, it wasn't that he just created Eve because, you know, Adam had a proclivity to women. He created Eve for Adam because that was the, the set order and his intention for humanity. I feel like when, you know, in, in hearing your argument or, you know, Matthew Vine's argument of, well, God could have made, you know, a man for Adam, is God not then just a matchmaker bending to the proclivities of human nature well, I, I or think human I wanna, feelings? Yeah, and I want to be as charitable as I can to Matthew in, in his position. This is why you're the theologian. <laughs> is that, you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's saying, you know, <clears throat> that God was creating the helper that was most suited for Adam. And and so there are some assumptions there. But maybe, but Joe, I mean, could, yeah, maybe Joe can comment on, on well, that issue. Monique, you answered it right there. That's the difference between a matchmaker and a creator. A matchmaker will look at the individuals and say, okay, what do you like? And what do you like? And how can we find the best compatibility based on what you tell me you like? That's what a matchmaker does. Mm -hmm. A creator says, this is my design. Mm -hmm. So when God said, I will make a, a, a partner suitable for Adam, he did not first consult with Adam and say, okay, now be honest with me. Are, are you into guys or are you into girls? And then we'll make something, you know, according to that. No. There is no contingency put uh, to that verse. And in fact, this is my biggest argument with revisionist theology. It, it imposes contingencies that don't exist in the text. Mm. So immediately after God says, all right, I will create a helper, a partner suitable for Adam, then there is a very broad statement that for this cause a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh now that would have been the perfect opportunity to say this was situational for this cause a man if he's attracted to women will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and a man if he's attracted to men will leave his mother and father and cleave to his husband but that's not what the scripture says the scriptural definition of marriage 
is very exclusive and very precise and reiterated by Jesus, who, again, had a perfect opportunity. If Jesus wanted the church to understand a gay-affirming gospel, he had the opportunity to say, you have heard from the beginning that marriage is defined as a male-female union, but I say unto you, because he was very good at doing that, he was very good at changing people's preconceived ideas, but he did not seize the opportunity to introduce a gay-affirming viewpoint. Quite the opposite, he reiterated our traditional understanding. So as Monique said, and this is the position I found myself in, Monique, I decided God would be my matchmaker when I basically said, here's the premise I will operate from. I'm gay. That's how I feel. Now, let me search the scriptures to find a way that God would validate my entering into a gay relationship responsibly in a monogamous relationship. I'll do away with the excessive drinking that I was doing at the time with the promiscuity that I was giving myself over to. I'm going to make my relationship a part of my church life. I'm going to live out my life as a responsible gay Christian. I was basically starting with the premise that God must affirm my being gay because I don't believe I have any choice. And from that understanding, then, I built my philosophical construct to, to develop a relationship rather than starting where we all should start, and that's asking what Paul asked the Romans, what say the scripture? Well, what am I supposed to submit myself to rather than how am I supposed to gratify my feelings, however deep and sincere they may be? So what I hear you saying is that instead of instead of us coming into alignment with the word of God and truly becoming a disciple and following Jesus, no matter the hardship or whatever, Christians who adopt this revisionist um, text or framework, what they really do is maybe because of the their own emotions or things like that, they really create a God in their like after their own liking or their own thoughts as to who they would want God to be rather than allowing God to be who God is as he is revealed to us through scripture. And there's precedent for that, isn't there? I mean, I go back to even the book of Exodus and I see the, you know, when Israel said, uh, we're, we're not crazy about the God that we can't see or experience any longer. Let's build a new one. Now, I, I, that's a very flippant way of putting it, because, of course, most people I know who embrace pro-gay theology for themselves they're not just wanting to go into some crazy sort of idolatry. They're very sincere, yeah. but I believe they're very sincerely wrong. Look, yeah. if you choke the Bible hard enough, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really can. Um, I've, I, I've had people say, um, oh, God is legitimizing me getting high on marijuana because he said, take every herb of the field. Yeah, or God legitimizes me running around naked because we were created to be naked and unashamed. I mean, and 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 that that's that's nothing new. But Monique and, and Christy, you're bringing up something else that I think this really speaks to, and that's the context of this discussion. The context of this discussion is a time of real biblical ignorance, isn't it? I mean, I think it's one of the greatest scandals of the modern church. Is uh, there is not. I believe there is not adequate time and priority given to the disciplined study of the scripture. Hmm. I don't believe we're living like Bereans who check everything according to what the word of God says. And where there is biblical ignorance, there has to be a lack of biblical discernment. Hmm. And if there's a lack of biblical discernment, 
that is the ability to discern what's right or wrong based on your working understanding of the scripture, well, then you're going to fall for all kinds of things. And I believe that's one of the reasons many Christians today are falling for revisionist theology, among many other errors, is because when we're not well grounded in the word of God, when we don't read it regularly and study it regularly, we're not really sure what it says, then we are persuaded more by emotion and by human affection. And gosh, if you know somebody who is lesbian, gay, bi, or trans, um, there's a good chance you know a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've often said yeah. if likableness would get you into heaven, LGBTQ plus people are going to get there sooner than a lot of the rest of us. I mean, yeah. some of the most intelligent, likable, creative, interesting people I've known yes. have been openly gay and lesbian people. I agree. Uh, and so when you care about someone and you genuinely like them and respect them, you don't want to believe they're outside God's will. Mm-hmm. You don't want to believe they're in the wrong kind of relationship. You, you want to believe that their life is fine. And that makes it that much easier to be persuaded by that emotion into thinking, well, then their life must be fine. I think a really important point I want to make sure that to emphasize, and I don't want it to blow by people, is Joe is really outlining for us um, a different foundational belief. Like we talk a lot on the show about the importance of worldviews. And that starting point is critical. You can either have the starting point of I am gay and then move forward into the scripture from there. And and that can then create the groundwork for revisionist theology, because I don't want to merely reduce it down to emotion. I want to be careful and nuanced in how we're saying it, because many of these people care deeply about what scripture says, and they sincerely think that they are holding a framework that scripture teaches. But then there's the first principle of the historic Christian position is we start with God's word and we say, what does God's word say about this? Mm-hmm. We often say on the show that uh, we shape our thoughts, feelings, and opinions according to scripture first. And so these first principles that that Joe is very thoughtfully bringing forward here, I want people to understand that what ground you till is going to lead to different outcomes. And um, I and also Joe's very thoughtful point about biblical literacy. I think one of the things that makes revisionist theology so um, compelling is that you can string together some Bible verses on nearly any subject and make the Bible say almost anything. Um we've used before the analogy of the word faith movement and, and that excess, they have verses, Mm -hmm. they have Mm -hmm. their biblical case. The question is, is are they interpreting them within their proper context, within their proper historical grammatical setting? And so we don't want to give a position or an impression that this is purely an emotional argument, that these are, these are deeply held beliefs and people are trying to advance biblical arguments, but this is why on the show we always incorporate the question, what does the Bible say, and how has this passage been historically interpreted? When we get to revisionist theology, that's where I think, okay, now we're imposing a framework that is quite late in the game <laughs> in church history. So giving some level of deference to tradition, just as we do on the Trinity and the Incarnation and these other great doctrines of the faith. So I just want to make sure that those 
important points that you're making, Joe. Don't don't blow by listeners. One question, and then I want to get into the question of inclusion in the local church. But I'd love for you to address the question or the this term of sexual orientation. I think this is a very important question as to because um, because opinions differ. You know whether sexual orientation is something that's inborn, it's fixed, it's unchangeable, or whether that is something that can be transformed, redeemed, and and changed. Um, so could you could you help us think through that? a little bit more um, biblically and in your pastoral experience. Uh, sexual orientation is kind of a smoky concept. Uh, we're not even really in agreement broadly as to what it means, but usually it means the direction of your sexual desires. If you are primarily or essentially attracted to the same sex, then um, people will say your sexual orientation is homosexual, um, the opposite being heterosexual or possibly bisexual if you're attracted to both sexes. Uh, it's not a concept that scripture promotes. The only time scripture talks about inward desires for the same sex would be in Romans 1, when Paul describes uh, inner passions of women and men who were involved in, in homosexual activity. Uh, what we do know is that we, we first have what scripture states, then we have experience. And we always judge experience by what Scripture states. What Scripture states is that no matter what causes a particular feeling or tendency, that alone neither legitimizes nor condemns the feeling or tendency. Therefore, uh, if a feeling or tendency was determined to be inborn, that alone wouldn't mean that it is legitimized. Um, David said, I was, I was conceived in sin, shaped in iniquity. I mean, we, we come out of the womb sinners, as beautiful as newborn babies are. They are created, you know, they're born in sin, and therefore there are sinful tendencies there. Um, I don't believe there is any evidence, there's any proof that homosexuality is inborn. But my feeling is that sometimes evangelicals have gone off on rabbit trails being so determined we got to prove that it's not inborn. When the broader question is, well, since when do we determine something is right just by what caused it, whether it's inborn or it's acquired or, or what have you, the question is, in light of the word of God, is the thing in and of itself right or wrong? Was it intended or was it not intended, whether it was inborn or acquired? My belief is that homosexuality is not inborn. There is no proof as we speak that it is an inborn condition. But my belief also is that we probably are born with personalities that are susceptible to certain things. And so I think in my case, I was born with the kind of personality that was susceptible to homosexuality of other variables came into place developmentally and relationally and experientially. I don't even believe there's one reason people become homosexual. I think the reasons can vary from person to person according to the uh, the person's unique experience. Now, the $64,000 question is, does that mean it is a fixed condition or is it a fluid condition? And I would start with the premise that even if someone continues for the rest of their lives to feel a certain tendency or temptation, that alone doesn't mean that God intends the person to give in to that feeling or temptation. So like when I repented of homosexuality in 1984, 
I didn't even think in terms of change. I thought in terms of obedience. I realized, okay, I'm attracted to men, but I'm a believer and I am going to submit those attractions to God. And my prayer was, was not God change me. It was God make me obedient because I don't know how that's going to happen. So you give me what I need. Give me a, a love for you and for holiness and a hatred for sin. Give me what I need to live an obedient life. That was the whole premise I started with. What I found was that at least in my case, having closed the door on relationships with men that were sexual and romantic, I did find that as I was interacting with one woman in particular, I began to feel very specific, both emotional and sexual attractions to her. And I told her early in our dating experience, this has been a part of my life and my experience. I wanted her to know what she was getting into. We had a three-year courtship and then we were married in 1987. Now, I don't experience attractions like conscious, strong attractions to men, but I, I'm pretty sure I know under what circumstances I could and what places I could ex kind of experience a reawakening of that. So I think any sin that we've been involved with, uh, we may repent of it with all our hearts, but that doesn't delete it from our memory banks. I believe that anyone who's been involved in homosexuality absolutely could be tempted back towards it. But I also believe that this is where we have experience now, not just what's spelled out in scripture. Experience shows us some people's sexual makeup is more flexible or fluid than others. I've known people who repented of homosexuality and they'd say that everything I just said was wrong, that they, have, they could never be tempted towards it it's over. The thought could never cross their mind and good for them. I think that's wonderful. I know other people who've repented who on a daily basis have to say no to homosexual temptation. And why is that? I don't have a clue. I really don't. Uh, I, I don't. I certainly don't think it's because one person is trying harder than the other. Uh, and so when we hold up the change um, requirement and say, if you've repented of the sin of homosexual behavior, you must also be completely relieved of homosexual desires. I think we're holding up an unbiblical standard because th there is nothing in scripture promising us that we will be relieved from the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And in fact, that is a struggle which is biblically guaranteed. So my question is, is the person living an obedient, sanctified life rather than does that person continue to experience temptations? Because if the person experiences temptations, that to me just means that's life in this fallen world. And if your temptations weren't homosexual, they'd be something else. There's plenty of temptation to go around. And what God requires of us is obedience. And then whatever transformative work he does, that is his sovereign grace and power. And uh, praise God for it when it happens. In my opinion, it is every bit as much a transformative miracle when God takes a disobedient woman or man and makes that woman or man obedient as it is when God literally transforms something within that individual. Both are miraculous to my thinking. You know, I, I have a question and it's a little bit off the beaten path, but it's um, regarding something that I have watched in regards to children and the issue of gender and sexuality and being non-binary or transgender, you know, all of these things. I'm wondering as we teach, because there's a specific um, organization who teaches this to young children. I'm wondering as we teach this idea of, well, you can at five choose your 
you know, sexual orientation, your gender and those kind of things, your pronouns, all of that. What I hear you saying is that statistically there's no no statistic that proves that this is inborn. So what I would probably consider to be nature, there's nothing statistically that proves that this is the hard wiring of who we are. When we teach these things to children and saying, you can choose your pronouns or, you know, if mom calls you a boy, but you really feel like you're a girl, you can tell your parents that you're a girl because that's how you've been made. Can we even accidentally or intentionally nurture. So nature versus nurture. Can we nurture this way of thinking into children as a programming where then maybe the child who was just being a child and, and explorative or, um, you know, just, yeah. Can we nurture these things into children and saying now, you know, I'm five. I don't know anything about being transgender or homosexual or anything like that. But now not only have I been taught that, but it's been nurtured and caressed in me to believe that this is the right way, that I am a homosexual five-year-old. And now we raise that five-year-old who had no clue really what they were saying to be the homosexual, you know, 16-year-old. And there's a, a popular um, 12-year-old right now who is homosexual. He's a, he's a boy and, um, he, but he identifies, he's not homosexual. I'm sorry, transgender. He identifies as a girl and like all of these things. And so I'm wondering how much of that even is the hard wiring versus the nurture of parents. I want to, before Joe answers that, I would say like for me growing up in the seventies, um, that I, I grew up, you know, pretty hardcore tomboy, you know, but if I was growing up now, all the messaging, you know, like everything, all the messaging, the cultural messaging for me as a girl in the 70s who was a tomboy. I love playing baseball and I always enjoyed playing football with my cousins and everything. All the messaging to me was you will eventually outgrow this and then you will figure out, you know, that you're a woman and you will find your way. Mm -hmm. That was the cultural messaging to me. And I'm so grateful for that because I always had like this little inner confidence I will sort this out. Mm-hmm. And it was okay for me. And so I, I, my mother was very <laughs> accommodating of all of my tree climbing and tree houses and all of this stuff. I didn't like dolls and everything. But if I was a kid today, the cultural messaging is so different. And I think that I, I would be vulnerable to having that shape my thoughts about myself and that I would end up in a very different position and being 28 years into my marriage and two grown children and all of the, the great life that I've, I've created. I don't know. So now we can get Joe to weigh Nature in. Nature versus nurture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't believe we can shape feelings within other people, including children, but we can definitely shape identities. And I think that that's largely what we're doing when we tell kids, if you feel a certain way, oh, I encourage that, I affirm it, that must be what you are. If you're anatomically male, but you say you're female, well, then you're female. Um, If you are not um, stereotypically masculine, oh, you must be gay, which, you know, a lot of people to this day confuse stereotypical masculinity with heterosexuality, when in fact, There are plenty of homosexual men who are very, very stereotypically masculine and vice versa. So 
I do think that what we are, I, I think we're doing two things simultaneously in answer to your uh, question, Monique. I think that, yes, when we, when we take that approach um, with children, we are first both introducing and creating confusion, you know, um, because we are basically messaging the kid that what you feel is what you are. Well, what you feel shifts in, in, over different times. And what you feel is not necessarily an indicator of a particular sexual proclivity. Just like you were saying, Krista, um, the fact that a young girl is quote unquote tomboyish certainly doesn't mean she's a lesbian. It means she's tomboyish. And to what uh, point do we determine that that is right or wrong? The same with a boy. What if a boy is sensitive, artistic, creative? Uh, are we going to send him the message that there is something foundationally wrong with him? Or are we going to send him a gay affirming message and prematurely categorize him? Or are we going to leave the kid alone and basically say, there are some boundaries that we will ask you to observe. If you are a boy, you are male. And no, we will not affirm you identifying yourself as something other than what you are. But males can be very aggressive and very strong and very athletic. They can also be very sensitive and very artistic. And we're not going to tell you that one is better than the other. We're going to let you experience your life and grow and develop within the perimeters that are biblical and bright and that we practice in our home. And uh, I agree with you, Krista, that when kids are left alone, I think they're much more likely to come into a normal identity and self-awareness. And I know I don't think we should be tampering with that. So that's one thing we're doing is we're introducing confusion. Another thing on a spiritual level, which is pretty darn serious with this whole issue of, of identification, creating reality, we're usurping divine authority. We're basically saying, I have the right to speak into existence what is not and make it what is. Well, I don't have that right and I don't have that power. I can tell myself all I want that I'm a multimillionaire, but my bank says otherwise. And it doesn't matter how strongly I identify. And the same is true with the body that we have been given, the uh, anatomy that we've been given and the sex that God divinely assigned to us. That is not changeable, and we don't have the capacity to say, if I identify a certain way, that is now reality. It's a very dangerous precedent, and in my opinion, it's, it's a, a form of usurping God's authority because only God has the right to speak things into existence. We do not have that right. That's very good. That's helpful, That's yeah. That's very helpful. So as a pastor, you know, talking about inclusion, which is a big value in um, critical theory right now that's in our culture. Um, inclusion is one of the great virtues of, of that framework. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to mention and let everyone know you have a new book coming out talking about cancel culture and you do cover critical theory in that. And so it's forthcoming in August. So if people want to hop onto Amazon, they can um, check that out, uh, Christians in a Cancel Culture, Speaking with Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. Um, that's going to be a, a great resource for people. Also check out some of Joe's other books. He has books on all of the major biblical passages related to homosexuality and all of that. He has many fine books on Amazon. But I'm wondering from a pastoral perspective, how you might advise church leaders, for example, on inclusion 
for those who struggle with same-sex attraction and um, how they can support those people in their, their local local congregations? Well, let's start with the premise that the gospel is exclusive and the requirements of discipleship are specific. Both are equally true. The gospel is inclusive. Whosoever will may come. How do you get more inclusive than that? There is no one, not one human being ever created who the gospel was not available to. So Jesus said, come unto me, all, all of you, anyone, absolutely. Um, but the call to discipleship is very specific. So Jesus, um, I've often said he would have made a lousy infomercial for Christianity because he, he didn't say it's going to be easy. He did, you, you know, he, he basically said, uh, if you want to follow me, you are going to take up your cross and deny yourself and you're going to follow me. Now, and then he also made it clear, now in doing so, you're going to find your life. So when he calls us to die to ourselves, he's only calling us to die to anything that is contrary to God's will. And in that, we find life and peace. Like, my gosh, I've often said, if right now, you know, I had a burning bush experience and and God said, um, Joe, you made a mistake. Um, You can find a male partner. It's perfectly okay, what have you. I honestly would say thanks very much, but I'm not interested because what, what I'm living out is what I was intended to live out. That's a ridiculous scenario, I know that. But but the point I'm making is, when he calls us to self-denial, he calls us to what really is ultimately in our own self-interest, what is in our best interest. But uh, that, that raises the question of submission to divine authority. We, first of all, open our churches to everyone. I would hope we would never say to a trans person, a gay person, a lesbian person, you cannot attend our church. I would want them to attend our church. Um, regardless of who they are and and how they are living. Now, if somebody says, I want to join your church, that's when I would say church membership, there there are requirements which include a submission of your life to the authority of Scripture. And therefore, if you are wanting to be a member of the church, we will need to know that you have not only been born again, but that you are living your life, not perfectly, but that you are submitting your life to the authority of Scripture. So, for example, if you are living with a woman you're not married to, we're, we're going to uh, have to ask you to correct that situation and live out your sexual life in obedience to God and your relational experience. If you are involved in some sort of a violent lifestyle or, or you know, abuse of drugs or alcohol, we're going to ask you to address that. We're not looking for perfect people to be church members but we're looking for obedient people, people who are submitting their lives to the will of God. And that would include church membership and to my thinking, certainly church leadership, a person who is going to uh, seek church leadership in any form has to have not again a perfect life, but an exemplary life that is being lived in accordance to scripture and in consistency with scripture. So that's the difference I see between the gospel invitation, which is open to everyone, and church attendance, which is open to everyone, versus church membership and living under the authority of what the church teaches, which is hopefully what the scripture teaches about how our lives are meant to be lived out. So do you want to you want to go? No, go ahead. Okay, right. Sorry. I couldn't tell. Sometimes we're like, I know we're who's going to yeah. tell? Who's going to ask? <laughs> um, so that's a helpful. I think what was really helpful about that answer, Joe, is that you're you're not just targeting the people who struggle with same sex attraction. You're saying, look, 
We want um, sexual obedience for everybody. So if people are cohabitating, you know, they need to, I like how you said that, that they need to correct that situation uh, before, you know, they're coming into membership or leadership. Um, but we we have a wi- widely inclusive invitation to all for the gospel, mm-hmm. but then um, we're not just targeting people that struggle with homosexuality. Um, we're saying, hey, we need to have sexual obedience. Everyone needs to be in sexual obedience. And I would imagine that would include people that even struggle with porn addiction and oh, sure. yeah, things, things of that nature. So we're not just targeting the, the people in the congregation who are struggling with same sex attraction. I'm wondering, um, cause I'm hearing a growing chorus of people in evangelical churches when it comes to leadership, uh, with people who struggle with same sex attraction, you know, that, well, and even to the point of saying, we need to be inclusive kind of to the point of there needs to be representation on the leadership team of somebody, you know, you need to have people of color on your leadership team. You need to have people who struggle with same sex attraction. And it's kind of this blending of, of Christianity with the values of, of critical theory and, and that aspect of it. And I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit of, how do we discern about who's qualified to be in leadership and how would we think that question through a bit? Sure. Well, let's keep in mind that the race we are born with is God-ordained, God-created, God-intended, uh, whereas wayward sexual desires are not God-ordained or God-intended. So those are two very different things. And therefore, I think that it's well and good to have diversity and representation according to what God intended. Um, But now let me be facetious here, and I hope it is not taken as needlessly insulting, but there are any number of sinful tendencies that many people in the congregation have. We would not ask that those tendencies be represented in leadership just to make people feel more comfortable or more included. Now, let me be quick to say you used the word struggle Um, uh, Krista, and I think that's an important term. If somebody is struggling with homosexual attraction, that tells me they are resisting it. What we are doing, we don't struggle with. So if I use pornography, I'm not struggling with porn. I'm using porn. If if I'm involved in a same-sex relationship, I'm not struggling with same-sex desires. I'm giving into them. Now, should we have people in the leadership who struggle? Well, not only should we, we do. Don't we? I mean, anybody in leadership struggles with something. Let's just be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my point. So when I hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I keep my body under subjection. I beat myself up daily. I stay in training, lest after I've preached Christ to others, I myself become disapproved of by God. I think, holy cow, I wouldn't dare say anything less. Okay? I think every leader has some passion or, or temptation that she or he struggles with and needs to be saying no to. And that being the case, why that that tells me that anybody struggling, quote unquote, can be in leadership so long as they are living obediently. You see what I mean? Yeah. Now, if somebody is giving into their struggle, if they're living it out and practicing it, that is another matter. And, and that I believe disqualifies you from leadership if you are unrepentantly practicing anything contrary 
to what God intended for the sexual human experience. But would, to would be you, struggling, uh, we have people in leadership who struggle. That's perfectly okay. Would you say that that goes down to service as well? So maybe, you know, the person who is participating in the homosexual lifestyle isn't in leadership, but they serve coffee, you know, or they... Teach children in Sunday school class. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I see that as being a you leader. You see that a leadership? I, I feel like that's, okay. if you're teaching, that's a leadership role to me. Okay. But like, if I'm just the person who pours the coffee, like I'm not teaching, I'm not technically to me in a leadership role. I guess I kind of- So we're talking about a, a person different. who is actively engaged in a homosexual relationship. I'm a homosexual Christian. So maybe I go to, to the church that may not, you know- agree with my homosexual lifestyle, but that's where I've grown up or things like that. And I'm the person who serves the coffee. Is that something, and I mean, people know, you know, and maybe they're just hoping that I come out of it or, you know, whatever, but is it's not being addressed directly. Yeah. So, or, you know, maybe they're having, maybe I go to life group and we're having conversations about it, but everyone knows that I'm still participating in this lifestyle. Perhaps I'm married, you know, and I'm married. My partner and I, we we go to church together. We serve the coffee together. Are you saying that because they're not in leadership, that's okay? Or would they need to sit down all together until they sort themselves out? You know, I'll tell you my opinion, and not everyone is going to agree with me on this, Monique, but I believe that any visible place of responsibility in the church is a place of leadership. It is not the same as teaching the word, Mm -hmm. but I believe that if you are serving coffee or you are ushering or you are cleaning up after the service or whatever you're doing, if you're doing it as a visible representation of the church, um, then I think along the line of us being a uh, a priesthood of believers, I believe that that is a leadership position of visibility and trust because it is a holy thing. Anything that we are doing in service in the church is a sacred responsibility. And for that reason, I believe that the same principles would apply to someone who is pouring coffee as they would apply to someone who is teaching Sunday school class. Now, I know there are very good pastors who would disagree with me and who would say, well, we're very comfortable having an openly gay person serving coffee because they're not teaching the word. Mm-hmm. My feeling is that sends a double message as to what the church condones and what the church does not condone. But um, as I said, I know there are people who would disagree with me on that, but that's my take on it. Okay, that's helpful. Thanks. Do you need to help your dog, Joe? (laughs) I'm feeling sorry for this. I am extremely chagrined. I am sitting here on a podcast with you, (laughs) unable to get up and tell my English bulldog to shut up. If you need to to go out. My wife must have left the house. So the dog is now hearing me talk in here and he Ah. wants to come in and be a part of the conversation. And so I, to all of our listeners, I am very sorry. That's That's the best. All right. That's okay. I just felt like a little sorry for the dog. If Sparky wants to go out or come in. (laughs) uh, Well, we just have one more question and then we'll let you go. But um, we want to talk, you've given so many great pastoral points. And I think that, um, one of the things we would be remiss if we didn't have you address a bit is dealing with loved ones in our life or like Monique was saying earlier about the small group members. That's an interesting scenario, um, you know, of how do we kind of be in that conversation when someone we love 
it does self-identify as gay. We don't want to necessarily nuke the relationship right. um, just because they're in an unrepentant sin. We want to stay in relationship with them. So maybe you can talk us through that a bit. I'm a real believer in sustaining the bond and then prayerfully considering under what circumstances you can speak to the situation. Um, this is especially true if we have family members. I, I hear from so many parents, for example, who say, oh, my, my son or daughter is identifying as gay or trans or bi. What in the world can I do to change their mind? And I always say, well, let's not start with the premise that God is calling you to change their mind. Let's start with the premise that you already have a bond. Let's work on sustaining that bond and seeing if within the context of that bond, you could begin speaking truth to the situation as God gives wisdom and opportunity. So uh, I do think at times you may need to establish either clarification or boundaries. You may need to establish boundaries if your loved one is asking you to do something that would violate your own conscience. You need to establish clarification if your loved one is saying, hey, if you don't approve of this part of my life, then you don't love me and we can't have a relationship. I think that's where you need to clarify the difference between approval and agreement. Uh, nobody completely approves of anybody they're in a relationship with. I don't care who, who they are. Uh, my wife loves me. 34 years of marriage, of course she loves me. Ain't no way she approves of everything about me. And she'd be glad to tell you. There are plenty of things about me she doesn't approve of. So uh, approval is not the acid test of whether or not we love. So sometimes I think you have to reason with people. It's almost like you do relational apologetics. Well, let's start with certain premises. Is approval the same thing as love? Is approval the same thing as acceptance? And when you break that down, I think you can come to a reasonable understanding. And then hopefully, you, you have to remember the Holy Spirit is still alive and active. And as you feel led to speak into a situation, or as the situation is brought up in conversation, you pray for the right words, you pray for the Holy Spirit to confirm those words and soften the loved one's heart. And uh, you wait on God to see what he's going to do uh, in that loved one's life. But what you don't do is take it on yourself to change your loved one because you can't. You can't talk someone out of their sexuality. You can only speak truth as the opportunity comes and then let God speak to the heart because ultimately, if the heart is not transformed on that issue, if the heart is not softened and the mind enlightened, that person is not going to renounce what seems so deeply ingrained to them and so much a part of their life and which so much of the world is telling them is legitimate and should be celebrated. That that's really good. I think that's super helpful because especially well, especially the approval and agreement portion. I think when we look at or when we listen to what culture's saying, you know, so loudly right now is that if you don't um tolerate this, if you don't agree with this, then you don't love me. And that's not yes. necessarily true. What I agree with or what I approve of or disapprove of does not necessarily mean that I don't love you, that I don't, um, yeah, that I don't, that I don't seriously love you or want to be in relationship with you. Yeah. But now with the conflation of tolerance and love or agreement and love, you know, that's reason to break down relationship. Well, she doesn't agree with me, so she doesn't love me. And if she doesn't love me, then we can't be in relationship. I have a very close friend that um, is in my life and they did everything they could to homeschool their kids and, and raise them in a good home. And 
teach them about worldviews and all this stuff. And still, one of their children is trans. But to her and her husband's credit, <laughs> they have established a strong bond and continued that bond with that child. And that child comes home uh, on the weekends and has dinner at the house and enjoys being with the parents. And that is a safe place for that child to come. Now, that child is totally clear about the parent's position Mm -hmm. and their um, belief in um, who that child truly is as designed by God and what their sex is. But the parents have kept that relationship strong. And I, whenever I t- talk to my friend, I always say, you know, this story isn't over yet. The Holy Spirit is up to something. And so I think that's really good counsel, Joe, to keep that relationship and the bond strong. Now, in talking about like relationships and the bond, how do we or should we or maybe it's just up to the individual family but like how do we counsel pe- parents perhaps who say well you know my child wants to get married do i go to the wedding i know i have homosexual friends who are married and you know when when two of my homosexual friends chose to get married two separate weddings um i lived overseas and so i was like whoo you know, I'm overseas. I don't have to go. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to be in the position of like, man, I have to do I tell my friend like I can't go or I really love my friend. So I really want to be happy that they have found, you know, love and companionship. I, yeah, I'm not really sure how we address that. I think, uh, Monique, it gets down to how we view attendance at a wedding. Um if, if I had a gay friend or family member uh, who was graduating from college or was having a birthday or um, just got a job promotion and they were throwing a party, I'd be there with my dancing shoes and I'd bring a gift. Mm-hmm. No problem. Because I view that as a celebration of that event. Now, the question to me is, if I attend a wedding, am I just attending an event at which I want to show love? Or is my attendance there a statement of affirmation saying I celebrate this? Hmm. I believe it's the latter. I believe that when I attend a wedding, I am saying, I not only love these people, but I bless this union. I believe in this union. I celebrate it. Uh, Which is one of the reasons at one time, traditionally, the minister would say, is there anyone who believes that there is not a reason these two people should be joined together? Because the idea is, if you cannot celebrate and support the union that is being formed at that wedding, then what are you doing there? Um, if it, Just for example, if a heterosexual friend of mine um, dumped his wife in favor of a younger woman and married the younger woman three weeks later, and we were friends who went back 40 years. And my friend said, Joe, will you come to my wedding? I could not. Mm-hmm. And it would be very hard. I would have to say, I, you know, I love you. I respect you. But I cannot in good conscience say I celebrate this union. And what I encourage people to try to articulate is the idea that, hey, I would never ask you to do something that violates your own conscience. 
please don't ask me to do something which violates my own conscience. Can we both be adult enough to continue our bond, understanding that this is an area we have different viewpoints on? And that is the approach I would take if a gay person asked me to attend their wedding. Now, let me again be quick to say, as I said on another issue, there are Bible-believing leaders who would say, I'm wrong, and who would say, no, no, if you love your gay friend, your lesbian friend, you should be at their wedding as a statement of love. You can let them know you may not agree, but you should still be there. So I, I allow for the fact, I understand there are different viewpoints on this, but my take on it is, Attendance at a wedding is, I believe, a statement of affirmation of the union, not just a statement of love for the people involved. And for that reason, I could not in good conscience go to a same-sex wedding. Wow, Joe, you've given us a lot to think about. Yes, and this has been an amazing conversation. You brought such great content. Thank you so much. I want to, once again, let everyone know how you can get connected with Joe. Go visit his website, joedallas.com and follow him uh wherever he is are you on social media still <laughs> i do have a facebook page okay uh, i'm on facebook and there's joedallas.com and if you uh go to joedallas.com you also can see how you can sign up for our email list and be kept abreast of our webinars and different awesome. events we have yeah joe does a lot of webinars and teaching uh, he's an amazing resource go check out his books uh, on Amazon and also uh, consider pre-ordering his forthcoming book coming in August, uh, Christians in a Cancel Culture Speaking with Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. Thank you so much, Joe. Yes, thank you very much. Both of you, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure talking with this you. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Wow, that was great. It was good. I, what, did, what did you think? Did you Was it helpful? Yeah, I think it was helpful. I think it gives me different um You brought some on... great questions. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so, yeah, it just it it just clears some things up and I think having the opportunity to ask questions um from someone who has come out of that lifestyle and you know, how do we think about certain things as Christians and yeah, so that was good. And we have a couple more guests along these lines coming up in future shows. So, um we'll be addressing related topics with some other voices. So yeah. uh, I think it'll be good. I think we're going to be doing a show uh, soon on the Equality Act. Mm -hmm. And someone from the Restored Hope Network is going to be on here for that. So it's going to be going to be good. Yeah. And Freedom March, the founder of the Freedom March is yeah. coming on the show. I think so. what's important is, you know, how do we unite together? Like unity yeah. is more than just black and white. Yeah or ethnicity, you know, how do we unite as the body of Christ around the historically biblical framework for many of the issues that we're being presented with in culture? And as we seek to unite, we have to, one, unite around truth. And then as we are uniting, how do we support, you know, the family? How do we support people who may be struggling with this? How do I support, you know, family members who may be struggling because, you know, someone in their family has adopted a different lifestyle or or, yeah. you know, alternative to, to historically Christian lifestyle. And so, yeah, it's all about, about unity still. It goes back to, to how do we keep this, this unity that we've been given. It also goes back to a theme that we it just keeps coming up on the show over and over again is God's design, mm -hmm. worldviews, you know, that this, these are things that are big topics, but have profound impacts in shaping our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. Yeah. So good stuff. 
All right. As we close out the show, we want to mention our other sponsor, Impact 360. It's a wonderful organization uh, that can help provide um, support for your family, potentially, if you have teens and students in your family uh, that want to dig deeper into worldview issues, um, giving them some training. They have ministry for high school students, for, you know, college students looking at taking a gap year. They go on two missions trips for their gap year students, one down to Brazil and one to Utah, where students get the opportunity to share their faith in different cultures. It's an awesome experience for young people. They can earn college credits. They actually even have a master's program. And so check out impact360.com and find out how... Dot org. I'm sorry, impact360.org and find out how you can help your young person become even more grounded in their worldview. Uh, There's like Monique said, they have different programs. They have a one week, two week, nine month, and then a master's level program. Uh, It's a wonderful program. We know the people there, Monique and I are going to be speaking, uh, I think in their immersion program this summer. Mm -hmm. So go check that out and see if that might be a good resource for your family. Thank you so much for watching. And you have any final words? No. I thought okay. we were playing a video. That's why I was like, I was oh. just waiting, just in here, just <laughs> la la la. I'm seeing people I'm wrong. All right, you guys. We will see you next, next week. Next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to All the Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingshow.com. And find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.